We come this morning to a unique and a beautiful psalm, Psalm 45. There's nothing quite like this text in the whole Bible. For what we have here is not simply a poem, uh, but we have a love song composed for a royal wedding. The psalm celebrates the marriage of a Hebrew king to a princess, probably a foreign princess. You can see this in verse 1 where the author says, My heart overflows. My heart is, is stirred with a pleasing or a noble theme. And the noble theme which has stirred the, the poet is, of course, the king's wedding. He's been invited to the king's wedding. He writes a poem and he feels inspired. He says his heart is stirred, meaning the words come fluently. You can't chaperone inspiration. But the poet feels he has it at this point. And in the middle of verse 1, he addresses or he recites his verses. He says, I recite my verses. He, his composition to the king. Imagine how fearful this would be. You wrote a poem for the king's wedding. And now you go into the king and you say, here's what I've got. He's eager. He wants to adorn this, this glorious day with his craft. And fortunately for us, he says, my, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. And so the, the oral performance of the poem eventually gets written down. His tongue is a pen. And the result is our text this morning. A wedding poem from an ancient Hebrew marriage. And yet, the text clearly can be read on another level. In the later history of Judaism, the text was read as a promise of the coming Davidic king, the Messiah. It was read by Jews that way before the appearance of Christ. And of course, in the early church, this text was seen as a picture of the union between Christ the Messianic King and His bride, the church. And so we'll follow this text this morning along the lines of the wedding of the Hebrew king, but we will be noting as we go along the text's ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so we'll look at the text, Psalm 45, under three headings, the king, the bride, and the future. The king, the bride, and the future. So the first point's about the king, the groom. And the poet begins in verse 2 with praise. You are the most excellent, or in a number of translations, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. The reference actually is here first to the king's physical appearance. If you want your poem for a monarch preserved for posterity, it's good to start this way. He praises the king. Right? Nobody at a wedding says the groom looks mediocre today. He says you are the most handsome of men. In some translations, 
the most excellent of men. And as the subsequent verses show, it is the king's royal attributes, not his physical appearance, that constitute his true excellence. The excellence of the king, handsome though he may be, is finally due to grace. You can see that. Your lips have been anointed with grace. The grace that's poured out on the king shows itself chiefly in his gracious speech. He's like the poet, the king. He's skillful in edifying speech. You know, the decisive thing, at least in this context, the decisive thing about God as the divine king is that he speaks. That he has a word. And that he sends forth his word. The Christian religion is an auditory religion. It's about speaking and hearing. And the first thing the poet says about the royal king is, grace is poured out upon your lips. And because of this gracious anointing and the speech it produces, he says, God has blessed you, O king, forever. And already the text is starting to crack beyond just an Israelite context. It points to the future coming messianic king. Jesus is, after all, the fairest among the sons of men. He was anointed to speak, to preach the good news, to proclaim freedom, liberty. No one spoke as that one spoke. The Gospels tell us. And Paul calls Christ... In Romans 9, God blessed forever. And he's alluding to Psalm 45 there. He takes this address to the king. He applies it to Jesus Christ, the ever-blessed God. And so the poet begins praising the king. And he exhorts him with language that is normally reserved for God himself. If you read Psalm 45, you can see this in other Psalms, but if you read Psalm 45, you realize that this language goes well beyond what could be rationally predicated of any Israelite king. This was regularly done in Israel because the, the king was a living image of Yahweh, the divine king. So he charges the king in verse 3. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. The king is not just getting married. He's going forth to war. Fitted. Clothed for battle. You might remember in the New Testament, Jesus conquers. He conquers by the sharp sword of his word. You can see that in Revelation 19. He rides on to judgment with a sword proceeding from his mouth. And the king here is to ride on victoriously. He's to ride forth for the cause of truth, humility, righteousness, the poet says. It's a great contrast to these autocratic and violent kings of the ancient Near East. This king is to wage war. 
but he's to wage war for the sake of fidelity, which is what truth means here. Humility and righteousness. That is precisely the king's splendor, the king's majesty. Here I'm reminded of the, the, the Palm Sunday hymn. Jesus rides on in majesty, in lowly pomp he rides on to die. He conquers first by being conquered. That's how Jesus comes and rides on for the cause of truth and meekness. But that is not His final riding forth. Jesus' riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is not His final riding forth. We see Him again, as I just alluded to, in Revelation 19. In the fullness of might, seated on a white horse, And of him it is said, he is faithful and true in righteousness. Evoking all the language of Psalm 45. He judges in righteousness. He wages war. You might say that the king in Psalm 45, who's exhorted to ride on, to gird up his sword and ride on, is a picture of telescoping both of Jesus' riding ons. His riding on to die and his riding on to judgment at the end of Scripture and the end of history. The king, the poet continues, is exhorted, notice, let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the heart of the king's enemies. Let nations fall beneath your feet. The king we serve, the king of Israel, judges the nations, either unto destruction or restoration. Nations fall underneath the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, or they perish. All things are subdued by his powerful sword, his word. And this leads, in verse 6, to the establishment of an eternal kingdom. And here again, you can see more blurring between the Israelite king and Christ, the divine messianic king. The text says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The human Israelite king fades into the background. The king here is everlasting as God himself is. And even more striking here. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer ascribes this verse, verse 7. He ascribes it to Christ as the divine messianic king. He is God in human flesh, enthroned forever. Look at verse 6. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Right? These are the prerogatives that are ascribed to God throughout the Psalms. The text envisions a just and an everlasting divine kingdom. No Israelite throne lasted forever. And so the king in Psalm 45 is Jesus Christ. The one of whom the Nicene Creed speaks when it says, and of whose kingdom there shall be no end. Verse 7, again cited by the writer to the Hebrews of Christ, says, You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions 
by anointing you with the oil of joy. I mean, this is a remarkable verse. On one level, it simply refers to the part of the wedding ceremony where the king would be anointed. God being viewed as the ultimate source of the anointing. But when we see this text the way the writer to the book of Hebrews sees it, what we have is God anointing the messianic king who is himself God. It's very important to get that in verse 7. It is God anointing God. And thus, we see a distinction in God which would ultimately unfold itself as the distinction between the Father and the Son. Not only that, when this text comes to fulfillment in Jesus, it refers to His being anointed with the Spirit for His kingly work. He's the Christ. Christ means the anointed one. And so we have not only a distinction in the Godhead being assumed here, we have the outline of a king who is both God and anointed as man. A close reading of Psalm 45 will show you that the king of Psalm 45 is both God and anointed as man. And thus the king, ultimately Jesus, possesses the anointing oil of joy above his companions. Notice this conjunction, this joining together in Jesus Christ of two things. A kind of um, moral intensity. You love righteousness. You hate wickedness. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of joy above all your companions. We live in an age where people think that moral laxity is the key to joy. But it's precisely Jesus' moral intensity. He hated wickedness and he loved righteousness and that was why he, who was the man of grief and the man of sorrows, was the most joyful man who ever lived. Moral clarity is the key to joy. And this one is anointed with it above all. I wonder what that would do to us if the living image of Jesus Christ in Scripture was the picture to us of the preeminently joyful, glad human being. So, after the anointing, the ceremony apparently proceeded to the, invest, you know, the investiture of the king in his royal robes. You can see that in verses 8 and 9. He's got robes that are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, all these rich aromatic garments. He has palaces that are adorned with ivory, probably from India or Arabia. The music of strings makes him glad. All of these opulent surroundings, festive music, they accompany the robing of the king. And the guest list, the guest list at this wedding is prestigious. Look at verse 9. The daughters of kings are among your honored women. Right, this is not a local wedding. This wedding is an international affair. And ultimately in Christ, this wedding will involve every tribe and tongue and language and nation. 
So that's the king on his wedding day. The second point is the bride. The bride always appears after the groom. And the poet is a wise craftsman. He brings the bride into view uh, after he's described the king or the groom. She's, she appears at the end of verse 9. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Ophir, Ophir is an unknown place. So, so to, the, to the queen, if you will, the queen-to-be, arrayed in gold, the text turns. Verse 10, listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. It's interesting, right? When he, when, he, when he brings forth the king, the vision of the divine king whom we serve, the first thing he says of the king is, your speech is gracious. And the first thing he says to the bride is, listen. Listening is the first action of the church. And it's exquisitely demanding. We've spoken about it before. Listening gets us out of ourselves. Since God is the the sovereign God who speaks, the Word made flesh, listening is crucial to Christianity. Listening to God's voice, the eloquent God, the loquacious God, the speaking God who speaks in Holy Scripture. This is critical for the church's life. The bride is a hearing bride. So, the poet turns to the bride. He addresses her as daughter because she's probably the daughter of some dignitary or king. But her relationship as daughter is about to end. It's about to be severed because she's entering into a marriage. And thus she's commanded in the text, notice, forget your people and your father's house. She has to leave like Abraham did, her homeland, her nation. God originally presented Eve as the bride to Adam, and here the bride is presented to the king. And again, this bride is a picture of you and I. It's a picture of the body of Christ. And that means gathered from all nations, we're to forsake all things to follow the king. Listen, forsake your homeland. This is what the text calls us to as the bride of Christ to forsake all other allegiances and ties and ultimately to seek first the king and his kingdom. And as the bride does this, the text says the king will desire her beauty. The royal king desires your beauty. In fact, the text says in some translations, he will be enthralled by your beauty. You know, Jesus Christ as the risen king, the head of the church, does not simply command his bride, though he does do that. And he does not simply rule his bride, though he does that as well. He longs for his bride, and he yearns for his bride, and he's enthralled with his bride, and he desires his bride. And this is to entice you to be ravished by his beauty. He says to you first, I desire your beauty. The bride is given great consolation. You know, there's a lot you have to give up to follow Jesus Christ, namely everything. Everything. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. 
If you don't love me more than you love your wife, your children, your home, your lands, you can't be my disciple. Jesus makes it very clear you have to give everything up to follow him. But it's a great bargain. Because the bride is given consolation. She's in some strange new setting. But in verse 12 she's told, the city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. This is a picture of the Gentile nations and all of their wealth, all of their cultural achievement coming to the king flowing into Christ's kingdom, and as the bride, you will partake of that bounty. The Psalms and the prophets all declare this over and over and over. The future Messiah and his bride. Into Zion, they say, the nations will bring their wealth. This little gift from the city of Tyre in verse 12 may have just been a local, you know, generous gift from the king of Tyre to the queen at the wedding. But it's a picture of the wealth of the nations, of the fullness of the splendor of creation and all of its potentialities being turned into the property, if you will, of the people of God. In in verse 13, you get a further description of the bride. All glorious is the princess. The princess here is the bride. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. She's adorned like the church in the book of Revelation. She's made ready for her husband. She's decked out in gold. And in verse 14, there's a bridal procession. In embroidered garments, she's led to the king. Her virgin companions, the bridesmaids and attendants, they follow behind her. And as the king was anointed with this oil of gladness, so the bridal procession enters the text says, enters the palace of the king with joy and gladness. That's what we do every Sunday when we come to worship. We come in bridal procession into the king's palace with joy and gladness. He's anointed with joy and gladness above all his companions, and that joy is to flow out to us. You know, joy and gladness in the Christian life cannot be manufactured. They have to be given, and they can only be given by him who was anointed with the oil of joy above all his companions. Or to put this in simple terms for children, you can only be happy because Jesus is happy. And because Jesus is happy, he wants to make you happy. And so the bride is led in in gladness. The final point here. The future. Verse 16. The poet turns back to the king and he addresses him. He says, your sons will take the place of your fathers. Fathers here are the previous Israelite kings. In place of them, they'll be your sons. So the marriage exists. The marriage exists to secure the Davidic succession of kings to the throne. The marriage secures the future of the kingdom. And the king will make them princes in all the earth. This again points forward to the new covenant where Christ the king makes you and I kings and priests to reign with him on earth. So, 
That's the royal wedding poem. The, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is to be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Remember this in the Gospels? And indeed the kingdom is to be consummated with the words, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now the implications of this, I think, are somewhat far-reaching. They mean that history is one long wedding preparation. And that's why this wedding, or any wedding in particular, any wedding, but especially this one, is a narration of the mystery of the world, the inner reason for things existing at all. You know, weddings are not just one thing among other things. There's lots of things you do in life, but when you go to a wedding, you can say, this is why the world was created. Jonathan Edwards, the great, you know, 18th century American philosopher, theologian, he put it this way, the Father created the world that through the Spirit he might prepare a bride for his Son. That's why this scene continually spills forth. It, 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 it spills out, it implicates all the nations. And so when we see Psalm 45 in light of the Gospel, we see Him who is the fairest of 10,000, who spoke as no man ever spoke, who rides forth meek and lowly, conquering by the sword of His mouth. We see He who is God enthroned by God, God anointed by God, the ever-blessed God. John Chrysostom was a 5th century church father. And when he commented on verse 16 of this text, he said of the apostles, and we might call the apostles the first fruits of the princes of the earth that are referred to in verse 16. He said this. He said, The emperor's laws are in force within their own boundaries. The fisherman's commands extend to every part of the world. The Roman emperor cannot legislate for the Persians, nor the Persians for the Romans. Whereas these Palestinians have legislated for Persians, Romans, Thracians, Scythians, Indians, Moors, and the whole world. The bride, the bride of Christ the King is the international gathering of princes, kings and priests, that offers the endless praise in verse 17. So Psalm 45 says to us something like this, read the world rightly. What is going on? You know, there's ISIS and there's Ebola and there's a half a dozen other things. But here's what's going on. God the Father is preparing a bride for the Son. For this reason, He created the world. Don't be distracted. The world is nothing less than a preparation for a wedding. The wedding anticipated in Psalm 45. Listen then. 
Pay careful attention. Forsake your nation. Forsake your familial attachments. Leave them and cling to this king. He desires your beauty. He's enthralled with his bride. And since he is your Lord, worship him. Amen.